you're going out with potentially a hundred other aircraft and it's multi-domain space cyber uh ground sea everything working together against an enemy that is also multi-domain as well so i would say if you really had to boil it down 10 percent is dogfighting and how good your hands are the rest of it is being able to coordinate these large forces of exercises and typically it's the fighter pilots that are planning these exercises and if you boil down my job as a fighter pilot it's to make decisions and i think it's more important than ever now Welcome, listeners, to this supersonic episode of Into the Impossible, where we take you into the cockpit with two Top Gun fighter pilots, Hazard Lee and Ariel Kleinerman. At supersonic speeds, pulling up to 9 Gs, U.S. Air Force F-35 fighter pilot Major Hazard Lee has to make a lot of split-second decisions. Tested in 82 combat missions, Major Lee honed his ability to react under intense pressure and came home to train the next generation of stealth fighter pilots. In this episode, your host, Brian Keating, also an accomplished pilot, gets to geek out on what it takes to pilot F-16s and fifth-generation F-35s as Major Hazard Lee discusses his first book, The Art of Clear Thinking, a stealth fighter pilot's timeless rules for making tough decisions. Please keep Into the Impossible in your feed by subscribing and following. And for some extra credit, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's DR Brian Keating, where you can see the video version of this and all our episodes. And please subscribe there too. Do you want to hear more from high-performance individuals like Ariel Kleinerman and Hazard Lee? Please let us know what you think in the form of a review like this one from Audible. Profound yet accessible content, amazing guests. This podcast covers the most important topics on science and technology, often with a philosophical angle. Professor Keating, a cosmologist himself, together with the most brilliant minds on different subfields of science and tech, dive deep into their topics. And now, strap in and check your six for this supersonic episode of Into the Impossible with Brian Keating and fighter pilots Ariel Kleinerman and Hazard Lee. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome to all three of you joining out there, uh, wherever you may be. We are joined today by two special guests. And uh, myself, Brian Keating, uh, your host, your fearful host of the Into the Impossible podcast, discussing the impossibly delightful, delicious, enjoyable book by today's guest, Hazard Lee, which is called The Art of Clear Thinking. And I'm joined today by a very special guest, live in the Into the Impossible studios, making his first ever podcast appearance. And this is all right, my good friend, Lieutenant Commander Ariel Kleinerman. Graduate of many, many disciplines and places, but including and not limited to past guest on the show, David Spurgles, Princeton University. Ariel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Pleasure to be on. Thanks. And it's a very auspicious day to have a hazard on the podcast for many reasons. One, it's uh, when this comes out, uh, not 
the live version, which is coming out today, it will be the uh, release date of his first book, The Art of Clear Thinking. And hopefully there'll be many, many more books to come. It's been endorsed by many, many uh, people that are just incredible. But I want to point out past guest, astronaut and doctor Scott Parazinski, who's an incredible uh, human being. My mom, you know, fell in love with him when he was on the show. I'm sure she'll fall in love with Hazard as well. Hazard, welcome to the show. Major Hazard Lee, how are you? Brian, thanks for having me. This is great. It's great to host you. I love this book. Uh, This has been such a treat to read it and to really plow into it, both as a private pilot uh, here in Southern California, a big fan of the Air Force. My stepfather was an academy grad back in the 60s, flew tankers and phantoms in Vietnam. And there's a lot of that in this book, uh, as well as lessons learned for individuals of all kinds. But you know, I'm a scientist, and your father being a physicist, you know all about that. Uh, and the science in this book is what really stood out to me and made it so delightful and such a such a quick and, and easy read. But the storytelling is what really stands out in this magnificent book. So the first question I have, you know, we have a segment on the show whenever an author honors me by coming on, I always ask them to judge the book by its cover, something you're never supposed to do, right, Ariel? You're never (laughs) supposed to judge a book by its cover. What else do you have to go on if you've never written a book before? Is this your first book? Uh, So we do a judging books by its cover where we ask you to go through the title, the subtitle, and the cover art, if any. And the most important thing I want to ask you why did you choose the art of clear thinking, not the science of clear thinking? So take it away. Help us judge this book by its wonderful cover. Yeah, I love that because uh, that's the first thing you see when you go into a bookstore. So, um, yeah, I I really wanted to show that uh, there's a lot of books on decision making out there, but this is one through a little bit different of a lens. Somebody who is you know in the hot seat making these decisions so for me it's a little bit more of an art than a science although i talk through both so there are opinion-based decisions there are data-based decisions but for me when you're actually in the moment when you don't have time to fully analyze and process every single variable and detail a lot of it comes down to the art of making a good decision and i think a lot of people struggle making decisions i did growing up It wasn't until I became a fighter pilot and really found a good framework for making decisions. And I think as, you know, Ariel will say, and, uh, you know, I'm interested to hear your take when you fly, especially when you solo, as soon as you take off, you know that you're the only one, your decision-making is the only thing that can get you back to the ground. So for me, as soon as I soloed, um, it really changed the way that I see the world. So, um, so that's, that's something that is important and i wanted to to convey that with the cover with the f-35 i am an f-35 pilot um so that's uh that's where the plane came from and then a stealth fighter pilot's timeless rules for making tough decisions so i wanted to showcase uh a little bit of my bio in the subtitle so some of it was technical some of it was you know as as i talked to you opinion-based decisions but i think it you know I mean, I'll leave it up to you, but um, you know, I'm pretty excited for uh, for what me and the team at St. Martin's Press came up with. Yeah, it's it's really a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, the reason I didn't mention, but the reason Ariel is joining us today is he is a retired lieutenant commander in the Navy where he flew uh, the Super Hornet. So there, we have, you know, actually two real life American heroes on the podcast today. And I brought this bag here, which I got from an author by the name of Russell Monroe for his recent book. He makes this cartoon called XKCD. 
And it's for use in case of motion discomfort. And I solicited questions from my audience. But the first thing I want to do is point out today, Hazard, you may know or not know, is the 33rd anniversary of the release of Top Gun today, May 16th. So it's an auspicious day to have a a Navy fighter pilot on as well. Um, So I want to turn the first question over to my friend Ariel. And I think we had kind of a similar uh, discussion over, over lunch, at least at one point. I remember hearing from my neighbors here in San Diego, John and Martha King, that the day you become a pilot, your identity has changed forever. So I want to ask, uh, as a fighter pilot, as a fellow fighter pilot, what came away from reading this book? What kind of commonalities do you perceive between maybe Air Force stealth fighter pilots and following the Super Hornets that you engage with? What, what kinds of similarities are there? And are there any important differences that a layperson like me, effectively, would not take away from this, from this uh, wonderful new book? No, one of the things I, I enjoyed is I created mental models for myself as I went through training, things that I thought made me successful and, and how I approach problem sets. Um, and then I found that Hazard did a very succinct job of, of putting that down and writing much better than, than I've ever done. But uh, you know, these are models that I developed through flying and then also um, instructing. Uh, I also, that was another part of the book that I really liked was the, the stress on, on instructing and how to be a, an effective instructor. I found I didn't get a solid uh, background into how to be a, a proper instructor, and I approached it with the wrong mindset at first. Um, and over time, through trial and error, kind of came to a similar area that Hazard did as well of, you know, trying to reinforce the student, build them up, approach them from a different aspect as opposed to what we do pretty frequently in the fighter community, which is evaluation. It's every every flight is essentially a test. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I found the book to be, uh, you know. The, the quick mental math problems, I I had a fun, uh, it, it reminded me, I, I would often, my students would be there with a whiz wheel, which is essentially an analog computer for calculating mm-hmm. uh, distance, time, fuel. And I would uh, do fun games with them of like, hey, I'm going to do this in my head. You do it on the whiz wheel, we'll see who does better. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, using very similar techniques to what Hazard puts in the book, I would come up with, with a better answer than they would get two minutes later on the whiz wheel <laughs> with their heads down, low situational awareness. Uh, so Hazard, one of the things that I, I took away is uh, that there are these different, you know, kind of ways, mental models, shortcuts, et cetera. Um, but one thing I always remember hearing from, I think it was from a fellow F-18 pilot of Ariel's, which was, you know, if you're relying on hand-eye coordination, you know, people say, oh, Hazard, you must have like this phenomenal hand-eye coordination. You could just make split-second reactions. The book, I came away with a very different perspective, and I wonder how much do you rely on that, um, you know, on, on kind of the, the base primal limbic system versus deep ingrained systems training, thought processes, acronyms, et cetera. How much is physical, mm-hmm. mental? And if you could give us a breakdown, like I'm, I came away very interested in your training routine. Both for both of you guys are in exceptional shape, um, the shape that I can only aspire. I, I'm lucky hazard because unlike you, I can I'm always pulling like two G's. Um, you know, I've got I've got enough math <laughs> on me that I'm always pulling two G's. But anyway, uh, tell me please, what is the physical and mental relationship? How much is hand eye? How much is intrinsic innate? And um, and how much do you have to rely on actual cognitive processes versus physical ones? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of people think that when we take off and, and fight, thanks to, to movies like Top Gun, which is a phenomenal movie, but that it's this 1v1 cage match. We're going up, we're pairing our best pilot and our best jet going against, you know, Russia, China's best pilot and their best jet. Um, but it's really, it really is that systems thinking. You're going out with 
potentially a hundred other aircraft and it's multi-domain space cyber uh ground sea everything working together against an enemy that is also multi-domain as well so i would say if you really had to boil it down 10 percent is dogfighting and how good your hands are the rest of it is being able to coordinate these large forces of exercises and typically it's the fighter pilots that are planning these exercises as well so we'll plan them several days sometimes several years out with you know dozens sometimes hundreds of people all trying to align towards this common goal of overall mission success so it's a lot less than it used to be if you go back to world war ii uh, we have a lot of systems and sensors in place you're using F-35, it's a flying sister system. It's a flying computer. It's uh, phenomenal how well it can do that. And if you're busy just yanking and banking the whole time, you're losing that cognitive processing ability to be able to maintain situational awareness. So about 10% hands, you still have to have good hands. We're still training to dogfight. It's something that is, is very possible, but it's a lot less important than it used to be. You talked before we start recording, and then Ariel will have a question about your ACE framework versus the OODA loop uh, framework. But you talked, uh, we were chatting, and I watched on your Instagram feed. Uh, by the way, everyone has to follow his YouTube channel, his podcast, and his Instagram is just, you know, it's just like you live vicariously through Hazard. Uh, it's just so delightful. Uh, but one of them is a video with uh, one of my heroes, Tito Ortiz, is uh, UFC MMA, just an incredible guy. He's huge. He's He's probably my weight, but you know, one percent body fat gets in the uh, the com the commercial. I guess a civilian G uh, machine. Um, I forget the name of it. Hazard tells in a second, and he he you know G locks at or we should explain what that is. But he passes out at like nine Gs, and I'm like you know Hazard. You're like yeah, that's just you know breakfast for me. But but talk about just the physical you know uh, training. What what is like routine? You're going flying. Uh, you know, in the morning, and uh, a lot of my listeners are astronomers, and we might uh, think, oh, we got to really be ready. It's life or death. We hit the telescope, but sometimes we have to sleep. You know, if I'm using a telescope like the Keck telescope, it's ten thousand dollars an hour. Um, you know, if I'm not at my cognitive peak, it's going to be a tremendous cost to my grants or to my uh, funding agency. How do you deal with the physical demands of your of your highly intellectual pursuit? You know, the brain uses most of the calories in the body you know, when it's at rest. But do you have a physical training routine? And do you have any tools, tips, techniques to get sleep when it counts? That's really important. And then, Ariel, I want you to ask about your the OODA loop versus A's. Yeah, absolutely. So flying a fighter, a lot of people are like, you're just in a seat. How difficult could it be? But we are pulling upwards of nine G's, nine times the force of gravity. So right now I'm at one G. I weigh about uh, 200 pounds, 230 with my gear on at nine G's. That's over 2000 pounds of force just crushing you into your seat. And, you know, as you saw, Tito Ortiz, one of the most fit people on the planet, ninth person ever to be inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. He wanted to come out and see what fighter pilot training was like. So we put him into the NASTAR centrifuge, and uh, to his, this is all credit to him. He he wanted to do the full fighter pilot profile. He didn't want the old man, you know, kind of tour of it that uh, only goes up to four Gs. So nine Gs, nine times the force of gravity. He ended up G locking, so that's a G induced loss of consciousness. Um, so with the the forces that we're pulling, it's uh, vertical. So it's pulling the blood out of your brain and putting it into your extremities, and it's doing it with enough force that it can uh, rupture your blood vessels. So after a flight, it'll look like I have chicken pox on my arms and my legs, and that's from those uh, that pressure of the blood rupturing those blood vessels. But the real threat is passing out. If you lose enough blood, you'll pass out. And at the speeds we're flying, typically we're gonna be oriented with our nose down in full afterburner. 
So that's 40 plus thousand pounds of thrust pointed, you know, pretty much straight down. And it, you'll be incapacitated for about 30 seconds. And it, at the speeds we're flying, it takes about 20 seconds to impact the ground. So unfortunately, we've lost about one pilot a year to a G-induced loss of consciousness where they pass out and they impact the ground going, you know, 800 miles an hour. Um, so it's something that we really focus on. And it comes down to physical training. It comes down to nutrition. So just being, uh, just being... 3% dehydrated can reduce your G tolerance time by 50%. So you have to stay hydrated. You have to eat well. Uh, you have to work out with your legs a lot. Uh, how we're flying, it's typically pulling a lot of Gs, resting for a little bit, pulling a lot of Gs, resting for a little bit. So it looks a lot like HIT training. So we'll do a lot with that. And this is probably the biggest thing that's changed in the Air Force over the last 10 years. When I first joined, it was, it was a little bit like golf might have been in, in the 90s. You had a lot of John Daly types, people that uh, were really talented, good pilots, but, uh, they didn't treat human performance seriously. And, uh, I remember some of the instructors early on saying, you know, you didn't really have to train for G's just go out and smoke a cigarette before your flight, because that would reduce your, uh, your arteries and your blood pressure. So, you know, over the last 10 years, we've really focused on human performance because of all those people dying. Um, and so we now have uh, nutritionists that work with us. We have uh, physical therapists because you do have a lot of back and neck issues. A lot of people have to retire early. You have to, uh, sleep is a huge factor as you mentioned. So probably the average fighter pilot could pull 10, 10 and a half, maybe 11 G's, but each one of those things, if you're dehydrated, if you have a lot of stress, if you didn't sleep well, it lowers the bar for you. And it just takes one time of going over your limit that, uh, that can unfortunately in you. So sleeping is a big thing. You know, we'll sometimes have briefings at five in the morning when I was flying in Afghanistan, I would fly the graveyard shift. So I would go in and I would fly from 11 PM to, to 5 PM. We do have some, uh, uh, drugs that were prescribed for extreme things like that. Um, dextroamphetamine, but you know, it's not the best thing to, uh, to take continually. So for me, getting a good night's sleep comes down probably what most people have heard getting off your devices, having a routine, uh, exercising during the day. And then, uh, having a sound machine is important, especially if you're on that graveyard shift, everything seems to conspire against you. It's probably something that you experience, uh, being in a telescope at yeah. night. I'm sure they want to maximize the amount of time they can use that. So, uh, when you're using, you know, when you're working in the middle of the night, everything, especially if you have kids conspires against you to, uh, to try and wake you up in the morning. So having blackout currents, keeping the, keeping the room cool. So all the standard stuff that, that people have heard, but I think it's just staying disciplined and making sure that you're checking all those boxes. Well, you got to, um, you know, kind of take up the, the mantle of my friend and local, uh, celebrity Jocko Willink here. You got to start making supplements hazard. I see that in your future. Um, Ariel, you and I were talking about Uda. You were trying to explain what Uda is besides, you know, it sounds like a character in, uh, like an Oompa Loompa, but wh what is this and the, and the ACE framework that hazard, uh, can you compare and contrast those and how, how do, how could we apply those, those of us that are, you know, just flying Microsoft flight simulator? Yeah, so the OODA loop was uh, developed by John Boyd, one of uh, our most famous fighter pilots. I believe he also helped uh, lead the team designing the F-16, and uh, I'm sure Hazard could correct me being an F-16 pilot here. Uh, but OODA loop is uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. Um, and then Hazard, it, your ACE framework is the assess, choose, and execute, correct? Correct. So, uh, wondering if you could kind of walk us through how you, you know, 
what are what are the differences? What are the improvements on the OODA loop model with the ACE framework? Well, I don't want to say there are any improvements. The one thing about Air Force pilot training is that we're not really taught on what John Boyd, the history of John Boyd. I have his book over my shoulder. He's, uh, you know, one of the forefathers of decision-making theory. So he's done a phenomenal job, but I think the Air Force is unique in that it doesn't really adhere to dogma. So we take whatever we can and are always moving forward. And so Boyd had a huge impact in it, but he really isn't taught per se. And unfortunately he didn't write a book. Um, but anybody that goes to, to Air Force uh, pilot training and uh, goes through uh, fighter training is taught a framework similar to uh, the ACE uh, helix. So assess, choose, and execute. So in order to be able to consistently make good decisions, you have to first be able to have a high fidelity understanding of that problem. So as pilots, we call that the cross check, being able to see which variables are important discard the other ones. So I talk in the book about uh, finding the uh, the nonlinear ones that are uh, have an exponential return, for instance, ejecting. Lots of things to do. Most important thing, just slow down because uh, it does not increase uh, linearly, but it increases, force increases exponentially with speed. So being able to assess, then choose. So part of choosing is being able to develop a lot of uh, courses of action. So that's where I have a chapter about creativity and developing those courses of action. A lot of people choose to skip this step and just, they want to act. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the big ones is that it's tough to measure progress when you're brainstorming. So people just want to pick something and start moving on. And then lastly, being able to execute on that decision. So there is a lot of psychology here when we're flying it, missions in Afghanistan, there might've been a thousand people that touched that mission from spies on the ground to satellite operators, to people uh, in the chaos, to tankers launching from other continents, all to get you on target on time. And so there's, that's a lot of pressure, a lot of eyeballs on you. It's not like the old days where nobody can monitor you. So everybody's monitoring what you're doing. And so there's a lot of pressure and being an instructor, I've seen a lot of students choke. And so it's uh, about being able to control your emotions and being able to execute while under pressure. So that's the uh, the framework uh, that we use as fighter pilots. Now, both of you guys are instructors, and you know that's kind of self identification for for me personally as an instructor, in addition to being a a father and you know, hopefully a, a decent uh, a decent husband. But um, instruction comes up a lot in this book, and when I think about instruction, I think at least in my profession, Hazard, of being a professor, things haven't changed in over a thousand years. You know, back in the year 1080 in Bologna, Italy, the first major university in the West that's still in existence today, the uh, there was a guy and he would stand up with a piece of rock and scrape on the on the wall up here and, you know, and he'd scrape in front of uh, on another giant piece of rock or slab of stone and you know, how much is, how little has changed in, you know, a thousand years. And we don't even have things like simulators and, and things that have really advanced knowledge. But I wonder when I think about education, I've spoken to some of the greatest educators in the world, including uh, Carl Wyman, winner of the Nobel Prize, who's devoted his career after winning the Nobel Prize to teaching how to teach. And he called education, modern day professoriate class, kind of the equivalent of medicine in the era of bloodletting and leeches. 
And I wonder, you know, where do you see the future of education inside the cockpit? We were talking before the, the show aired that, um, you, you know, that when you put on the helmet, you guys, you know, claim that you lose 20 IQ points. I say, you know, that leaves 50% me... 50% brain power. 50% With brain power. With the engine power. on. But. Okay. So that, that then leaves me at negative capacity. I find the same thing in front of a chalkboard. You know, I'm sitting up there, stuff I could do, you know, sitting in my sleep probably, and then I'm in front of a class of students and trying to scrape some stuff on a chalkboard. But... Um, but it's it's comes down to you know kind of different uh, platforms of education that roughly align with Maslow's hierarchy of needs at some level. But I wonder what you guys think about the following proposal. If it's so effective to teach according to Maslow's needs, you know, to have physical safety, to have you know emotional safety and support, what if you could kind of you know do the opposite <laughs> and see the you know? So I've often thought in the simulator we should have like an M80 go off. Like when you crash the simulator, like I do it for fun. You know, I'm going to fly underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and my F-18 and Microsoft Flight Simulator. But if I really, you know, if there all of a sudden was a joy buzzer that went off on my butt, you know, maybe I'd have more visceral reaction. Hazard, what do you think the future of education inside the cockpit and outside the cockpit, what do you, what would you propose to bring it more into the modern era? Well, that, that is a great question. And that's what I worked on on my last assignment in active duty. So, Pilot training had not changed that much in 60 years. And with the F-35, it was a big opportunity. We had multiple communities coming together, A-10, F-22, F-15. Luke Air Force Base is also an international base. We had Dutch, Danish, Norwegian, South Korean, everybody coming together. And the F-35 is going to be the backbone of our air power for the next 50 years. And so we had a once-in-a-career, maybe once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reimagine what pilot training was going to be like for uh, flying the F-35. So we actually had a lot of those questions. It started with what's our ultimate goal to build a F-35 wingman that can survive and thrive into the late 2030s. So that changed what threats we're worrying about. Um, and uh, we used a lot of technology. So one thing that was interesting is we, as you said, have used uh, simulators quite a bit over the years. These simulators now are incredible. They are $50 million uh, pieces of art. They are domes that are two stories high just for one simulator. And they the cockpit's exactly the same as the F-35, and then it's on tank tracks, and it rolls you into the middle of this dome. As one general said, this is a monument to human engineering. So they're phenomenal, but and they do have their place. But the problem is we didn't have anything that was less fidelity. So students would learn the way they always did, memorize textbooks. They'd have a little bit of time in these simulators because they were so expensive, we could only have a few of them. And then they go fly the F-35, which is $50,000 an hour. So one thing that we uh, came up with was having a spectrum of devices. When a student is learning how to start the jet, they don't need this monument to, to human engineering. We gave them gaming laptops, something easy, something quick to get out there. We declassified it so that it, they could take it home with them, gave them HOTAS, hands-on stick and throttle. We came up with other devices as well, virtual reality devices that were a step up. And we were flying with 360 cameras in the F-35. Security aspect was was difficult, even though you know it doesn't sound that difficult. Um, and then they'd be able to, to play back. We do a lot of flame out landings in the F-35. They'd be able to see exactly what that sight picture was, as opposed to the old way of doing it, using a a, uh, a uh, dry erase pen on a uh, uh, a, a sheet showing you know how to do it, so they could actually see the sight picture of an experienced instructor doing it. And then we started layering in some other things, 
like uh, overlays of where the instructor was looking, how they were doing it. And now I, I've been working with uh, some the basic pilot training. They're testing some new things using AI to be able to find some key trends in what the student is doing. And it's not uh, you know 100% solution, but it can find a few things that it thinks the student might be screwing up. And then the instructor can look at that and say, oh yeah, he is screwing that up or can choose to discard it. So Air Force pilot training has really changed drastically in just the last five years or so. Mm. Ariel, what about training uh, from your perspective, from Navy perspective perhaps? Uh, JTAC was probably where I was most recently involved in, and uh, we had the same issue, $20 million JTAC sim, which actually went down because there were some issues with the contractor. Uh, alternatively, there was a former SEAL who, uh, I think his name's Brad Den, who developed a augmented reality, and then they were working with guys out of Hollywood to create a four-dimensional platform where you would actually feel the platform would move as bombs dropped near you, mm. danger closed, you'd actually have a heat wave, just to increase the intensity. Wow as you're in that process um, and also becomes much more afford affordable and mobile. We took some of these platforms with us to Iraq where now the JTACs can do practice their training, practice their calls in, in you know, anywhere, almost Realistic. anywhere you have a room, you can now start training. So, mm -hmm. um, so we, we talked Hansard earlier about your encounter with, um, you know, heavyweight champion uh, Tito Ortiz, but, um, but you also trained at the Air, uh, United States Air Force Academy, uh, and that was uh, part of your undergraduate curriculum. You were, uh, you studied boxing. You took, uh, you were, you know, took up the hobby, but it became part of this book. And I assume a large part of your mentality. And there's two, there's one quote that you use, but there's one quote I was surprised you didn't use. So one quote you use is no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And the, uh, and the quote that I was surprised you didn't use given your boxing heritage, uh, was, uh, the famous fighter pilot, Mike Tyson, who said, everyone has a plan until he gets hit in the face. Uh, what can ordinary people maybe that are, aren't as uh, fearless, uh, heroic as you, um, take away from the, the similarities between dogfighting and physical fighting? Are there commonalities? Are there ways, are there ways to keep your cool so that you don't lose as much of your plan or you don't, you know, lose your plan altogether when you step into the room with a, you know, with a formidable foe like Professor Tyson? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. We're all ears, uh, yeah. Just kidding. He yeah. There's a there's a lot of commonality there, and you know, as, as I talked to, I the Air Force Academy is located in Colorado Springs, which is also where the Olympic Training Center is, and I, I talk about a, a chance encounter I had with a sports psychologist, and we really worked on staying in the present moment, visualization, self talk, all those uh, you know kind of things that uh, it wasn't something that I, I really focused on as a boxer i really wanted to just work on the technique but this emotional side of things really made a big difference in my boxing and so i applied that to air force pilot training because air force pilot training they're stressing you to to the limit mm -hmm. they want to see how you do when you fail and so they will make you fail at some point or another and so there are a lot of great pilots there we had commercial pilots that were flying for American Airlines before. So they had a tremendous advantage over people. But at some point in the curriculum, you get to a point where you have not seen that side picture before and you will probably fail. And so what they wanted to do is see what these people's character was like. And so that boxing, sports psychology background and training gave me a, a big advantage there. I mean, it gives me advantage in uh, any high stress situation because there is a, a, a narrow band of excellence. If you go too high, 
talk in the book, the Air Force has done a lot of studies where if you are too stressed out, you really start losing, as, as we talked, 20 IQ points. But it, it, it changes based on what you're trying to, to do. So the biggest area where it decreases is your spatial intelligence, understanding where different things are in space. And that's huge for flying. So that's the first thing to go. High stress can help you with some moderate uh, to easy tasks that um, that you know that you have down pat. So there is a, a benefit to stress, but too much, and it really uh, hurts you flying. So being able to uh, being able to regulate your emotions, regulate your stress, your self talk is really important. Yeah. And that plan, as I talked to, as the Air Force has moved to this human performance aspect, all pilots, as soon as they show up, they start um, this. Uh, sports psychology training that we've adapted to uh, to flying fighters and that carries with them throughout their career and i've seen a big difference in the past there'd be students that i'd be flying with they'd be great and they'd make a mistake and the the, the train would leave the tracks and so now they're a little bit better at being able to uh, to be able to regulate themselves you don't want to be worrying about a past problem you're dedicating bandwidth to a past problem that you can't affect now. So you need to be worrying and using that bandwidth towards, uh, towards solving the problem that's in front of you. I had an instructor and I was puttering around in a Cessna 152. Actually it was a 150. I, I, I can't even fit into that anymore. Uh, but I've had you know a bunch of kids, so I have an excuse. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he used to say when I'd make a good landing, he would compliment himself because uh, he felt it was the instructor that ultimately had to take credit. And as you point out many times in this book, sadly, many pilots have been lost, including people that you've known and loved and, and you too, Ariel. And, uh, and we, you know, our hearts break for them, but you say a piece of all of us goes with them and we're responsible at some level. I wonder, uh, you know, how to not internalize that and how to kind of move on. I remember reading a wonderful book by David Mindell. It's called Digital Apollo. And it's about all the techniques, technology that both went into the Apollo landing missions and the technology that came out of it for civilian use, including the autopilot. And it turned out back then, in the 50s and 60s, they could have landed the Apollo landers, all of them, the Eagle, every, they could have landed themselves. Uh, but they built in the capability that, you know, the lunar command module pilot could actually take over at the last minute if he needed to. And, uh, and they found that every single pilot, even when the footage would later prove them wrong, would say, oh, uh, at the last minute, I saw a crater. I saw a big boulder. I saw an alien. No, no, didn't see any aliens. But <laughs> I saw this out of the corner of my eye. I had to take over. And it's because they said, in the, Mandel makes a point in the book that landing is kind of like the consummate ultimate expression of the pilot. In other words, that's that's the most piloting thing a pilot can do. So, of course, they want to take over and do this thing and land it and not let some stupid computer. How do you teach your students to like to to view an autopilot, these augmented systems as not a threat to their masculinity or femininity? There's a lot of female fighter pilots, uh, as you guys both know well. Um, but how do you let them overcome and see it as a partner? And I'm going to uh, obviously dovetail into AI and augmented stuff. How did you like handle that? Like to teach them that actually, no, it's not a diminutization, I can't speak, uh, diminishing your own capability as a pilot. It's nothing negative about you, but instead it's something that should be welcomed. Did you ever encounter that, Ariel? Not, uh, I mean, probably the best example uh we were forced to actually land manually on behind the boat every every night 
to get practice, but there was a time where my skipper specifically said, I want everyone in the squadron in the next week to do a, uh, what was a, I'm on a blank. Uh, anyway, there's a automated approach and I'm blanking on the name of it right now, uh, where the plane takes over and flies you in, uh, mm-hmm. into the wires at night, which as, uh, most people could probably imagine landing behind the boat at night is, is, is never really fun. You're, <laughs> you're descending into a dark black abyss. You only have a couple lights behind the boat. The boat's moving away from you at 30 knots and it's, it's oh, moving up and that. down. Um, so it's, it's never a fun process and it's definitely one of the most stressful, uh, things that you do as a, as a Navy fighter pilot. And that night, you know, I, I selected in autopilot plane is coming down. And I mean, it was the nicest approach I've, I've flown and it, <laughs> it, it was humbling. It's like, yeah, that this thing can actually do it better. Mm-hmm. Now that system's not always reliable. So you still need to rely, you know, develop the skills as a pilot yourself, but you know, you slowly start incorporating these systems, you start noticing that, yes, this is, it's, it's value added. Now I can, mm-hmm. you know, after a seven hour combat flight, I'd be a little bit less worried about coming back to the boat because if I am having, you know, we've talked about go pills, which I generally try to avoid, but would take if needed. Now, as you're coming back to the boat, you can go, okay, hey, if I'm not on the top of my game anymore, I have this backup option. Mm-hmm. If this backup option is working, it's going to get me on. I'm going to have my mid rats, which is our uh, midnight meal, uh, probably one of the most important meals on the boat, um, and one of the main motivators to get yourself uh, onto the deck. So. so, so Top Gun Maverick would never have happened if that existed back in the Tomcat days, because the guy that Maverick leads onto the boat at night in the weather, he could have just said, you know, screw Maverick, I'm just going to go myself. Ended up at Top Gun. The rest would not be history. Uh, Hazard, any way to? you know, advise students or, you know, and I'm asking self-interested as well. It's not threatening, you know, it's, it shouldn't be a you know, diminishment, as I say, or try to say of, of your ability, skill set or identity. Is there any, any tips to kind of help the psychological factors? Yeah, that, that is an interesting question. And by the way, in the F-35, the, it's so precise, the guys landing on the carrier are uh, wearing out the skid pads because it hits every time in the same spot. But that the is F-18 an interesting now has question. That same landing oh, system. Uh, yeah. Like, I think it's magic carpet, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think of myself as, as kind of a modern fighter pilot, you are organizing and utilizing all this technology. So I don't see a lot of people staking their masculinity on being able to manually do maneuvers. It would be interesting to go back and talk to some of those Apollo pilots because they probably grew up in the the thirties, the forties when it was fully manual biplanes, you know, that they were learning how to fly on. But now I think it's just so ingrained in us. When I was going through uh, pilot training, you know, I grew up with with real basic video games, Nintendo, all all those things, and we could process a lot more information than my instructors. And my instructors would say, "Your class, you know, just just can understand this a lot better than than I can, and can retain more information." The same thing today. So we're getting kids that are in their early twenties. And they've grown up with an iPad in their crib. And so the F-35 is essentially a flying sensor. It has two giant iPads in front of you. You can talk to it and it does things. Augmented reality helmet. So I don't think there's that uh, necessary barrier to uh, to being able to rely on technology. Every once in a while, I'll see a student that likes to manually get the setup per- parameters done for uh, for BFM. And, you know, if they can do it, I'm, I say more power to you, but usually they'll, they'll screw something up and I'll say, look, you can, you know, have the option of relying on the auto throttles. It's not a, uh, it's not a knock on you do that so that you have more mental bandwidth to be able to focus on something that matters. Do you ever find that 
uh, some of the lost skill sets uh, end up being important. So I, I'll bring it from the, my, the last three years I was uh, working as a JTAC, and we had these devices that would kind of give you a, a pretty good God's eye view of the battlefield. Um, but there'd be occasions where, you know, I, I set a target that was right below a giant red uh, water tower. And they'll be down there trying to figure out how to t- prosecute this and get the the pilot's eyes onto the target when it could be as simple as looking up, looking at your environment, going, hey, do you see the giant water tower that's, you know, on the coast here? And the pilot would immediately get there. So sometimes I found that the technology can be detrimental and that you do get, if you get too soaked into it, you start losing situational awareness of the over the overall picture. But. A- absolutely. You just want to you you want to start at the big picture and work your way down. So if you're heads down working through sub sub menu because you're focused on that, and that's kind of the the process that I talk about in the book. Work at the big picture, get a rough approximation of what the solution is, and then you can always refine that later on. I think that that is a problem, especially new students that can't necessarily prioritize as well or absorb as much data as well. Is that they get they glom off on the radar? F sixteen was it was a really big problem because it didn't have any sensor fusion. Your brain was a sensor fusion, so it was a rat's nest of technology from the eighties, nineties, two thousands, and so unfortunately we had six times the the CFIT controlled flight into terrain where pilots either passing out or uh, is flying low and is misprioritizing and running into a mountain because they're working the radar or the uh, you know radar warning receiver, so. As a pilot, I think always work at the big picture and then go down from there because uh, you can get yourself into some big, big problems if you do it the other way around. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the um, counterintuitive wisdom in this book comes from the, uh, as I said, counterintuitive realization that many things in life are nonlinear. That we expect, you know, kind of uh, doubling the output when you double the input, but many of these things are exponential and worse. And one of the things that you don't mention in the book, but it, but it kind of instantly came to my mind was this also this uh, this anecdote from aviation, which is why is the 787, which cost less and and um, you know took maybe shorter to develop, uh, why is that? proving better for the airlines than the A380, these giant, you know, 500 passenger uh, behemoths. And and the reason that I've heard comes down to a very counterintuitive thing, which is that, uh, which is that the A380 has so many people on it uh, that it's very difficult to envision that one of those 570 people at max load is not going to have a heart attack or some other kind of emergency uh, versus, you know, maybe 250 on a Dreamliner. It's, it's less, maybe a third less or, or what have you, uh, in different configurations. It's less likely to have an emergency. Now, when you land because there's an emergency, you're limited because of the time you have to rest the brakes, if I'm not mistaken, before you can attempt, uh, you know, a takeoff again. So the A380 will have to be on the ground longer because it's heavy. And these kind of the dwell time and the brake heating and stuff goes as the cube of the mass of the plane or something like that. So trying to optimize it to carry more passengers is actually detrimental. And so airlines are finding they can't get as many sorties, they can't fly as many people net net um, because of these nonlinear factors. And yet the human mind is very poorly adapted to this. We're, we're used to seeing, yeah, if we struggle twice as hard, we'll, if we run twice as fast, we'll, you know, get away from that, that tiger or whatever. We don't see many nonlinear things. So how do you inure people or get them accustomed hazard to thinking nonlinearly? Um, is it a matter of heuristics of, you know, rules of thumb? What, what kind of advice do you have for people dealing in the corporate world, perhaps they're going to read, love and digest this wonderful book um, to recognize when you're dealing with a power law situation and then apply 
the art of clear thinking. Yeah, I think the biggest way is to graph the data. It's a simple tool that's been around for thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of years. So being able to graph the data and, and it just pops out to you. So that's what we do for most of the different uh, relationships that we have when we're flying. So our relationship, our energy management, going back to, to John Boyd, is graphed. Um, and we can just overlay that with enemy fighters. And we can see where our jets have an advantage versus another jet. Uh, same thing with uh, when we're trying to geolocate SAM threats. What we're doing is we're doing a lot of different tactics. We're all sensor nodes. And being able to neck it down behaves uh, quite uh, behaves non-linearly. So being able to just graph the data, I think, is the single biggest thing. And being aware of how extreme non-linear events can be. So I, I you know, everybody's heard of the uh, the grain of rice on the the chessboard, or uh, the the doubling penny. It just you know gets to a, a tremendous amount very quickly. So I think even people that understand those linear relationships, it's good to continually refresh and understand that because I think we are relying more and more on technology, software or something that is very nonlinear. These jets, uh, we, we will get a new software load. And in, in one case overnight, everything got 25% better. So it unlocked the gun. Uh, we could pull more G's. Um, so software is something where, you know, two average people does not equal one good person. So you can find somebody that is a hundred times, 500 times better than, uh, than the average person. And it can have a tremendous, uh, effect on how capable you can be on the battlefield. So I think these relationships play out throughout every aspect of, of our lives, not just in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. Did you have a line? No. So um, we have a bunch of questions. I just want to take a little pause to refresh and uh, let everybody know we're talking with Hazard Lee, who not only as the author of this wonderful book, The Art of Clear Thinking, also has a podcast, uh, which I am devouring, a uh, phenomenal YouTube channel, and uh, most delightfully, so that you can like live that Instagram lifestyle, uh, his Instagram channel is off the hook. I hope you guys will follow him there and, and also on LinkedIn, where he dishes out daily doses of, of business acumen and wisdom. Um, also one of the, well, I should point out you're, you're the first guest that's, that's, yeah, I've had on astronauts. I actually had on Jessica, my ear who may be the first woman to walk on the moon's surface. She's a PhD graduate of uh, UCSD. It turns out I had her on when she was on the ISS flying overhead at, you know, a little bit faster than you guys can fly, but only for now, uh, and that was uh, that was about three years ago. Now, but she didn't read from. She doesn't have a book, but she didn't read from the audio book in the cockpit or in the ISS. So you are to be commended for that. Uh, it's so uh, it's it's really fun when you're listening to the audio book and you've been hearing Hazard and his kind of calm draw. Then you hear him on over the intercom system uh, with uh, with the book in hand, and he's got some pictures of himself on his Instagram feed doing just that. Uh, so thank you for that, Hazard. Um, so when you're uh, conveying that in the book, it really feels like you're in the cockpit. How did you, I mean, this is your first time book. Uh, talk about your, your writing process. Are there commonalities? We have a lot of authors that listen to this podcast. Um, talk about, are there commonalities? Are there ways, you know, tools that you use besides begging the forbearance of your lovely wife, I assume, uh, and, and, and your kids who you acknowledge in the book? Um, what are, how did you convey, how did you work to convey that and do it so, so spectacularly well in your first ever, you know, kind of your first sortie out of the box? Yeah, it was, it was incredibly challenging. So this is ultimately is the end of a, a six year journey. So the reason I started the Instagram and, and all of that is because 
So I had gotten back in 2017 from Afghanistan. Um, and so I started to, it was, it was a really busy time. We, we were really active out there. And so I was writing down some of the stories and decompressing that way while I was waiting for F-35 training. So I was like, you know, it'd be interesting to, uh, to write a book. And it turns out if you don't have an audience, uh, you know, and you're not like a celebrity or something, you, you really have no chance of writing a book. And so I was like, well, maybe I can do a podcast, um, and that coincided with another thing. Luke Air Force Base was looking for a speaker on Memorial Day to talk about uh, loss and, and some things like that. And there's a teacher in the crowd and she was like, my students have to hear this. So I started speaking in classrooms. And so those two things coincided and I started a podcast because it was a digital way to get things out. And that evolved into the, the YouTube and the Instagram to be able to promote that. And I was able to get a book deal and it was it was exciting the book deal part was exciting it was like uh, getting drafted by the, uh, the nfl we got into a little bit of a bidding war and uh that was the last time i heard from anybody for a year so i i spent over a year uh i spent actually over 500 days in a row writing the book so every morning i'd write from this office uh, about four hours every morning and it was just brute force um mm -hmm. To start off, I would I would look through some authors I really like. Atul Gwande is a really good one. Checklist Manifesto, if you yeah. haven't read that, it's a yeah. fantastic one. So I would I would look at how he interwove stories and just break down every sentence, every paragraph, uh, every chapter. Same thing with Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, after that, I was off to the races. I'm a slow writer. I would write about 500 words a day. Sometimes it would be a thousand, two thousand, and then I would. I would come back the next day and say, oh, this is terrible um, and have to delete it. But they, most authors say that the key to writing a book is to just get a crappy first draft out there. And that's what I did. What they don't tell you is now you have a crappy first draft and you still have a lot of work ahead of you. So I went through nine revisions uh, to, to really hammer this book and, and to condense it and make it, uh, make it as precise as I could. Mm -hmm. So it was, a, it was an amazing journey. Uh, very painful, but in a good way where, you know, you're, you're proud of, of something you've done. Yeah. Well, that really leads to growth. And again, uh, I think they say about writing a book that it's, uh, years of, of, sh of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror, or that's only when your kids come in the room. Uh, the C <laughs> in A stands for choose. Uh, I wonder if we could um, highlight, and maybe we'll bring this in if YouTube doesn't give us a copyright strike. You know, one of the best uh, ever songs about uh, about decision making is, of course, Rush's uh, "Living in the Limelight," where it's said that even when you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. I don't know what the other lyrics are. I won't sing it because I, I have gotten copyright strikes before. Um, <laughs> I remember a, a saying from my fa stepfather, who's an Air Force um, grad, as I said, and also um, uh, in Vietnam, he used to say, you know, uh, you could be right and you can be dead. Uh, so meaning that you could, you, the air traffic controller can be telling you to do something and you feel like, well, he or she is an authority. I'm going to have to do it. You know, she's, but I'm actually right. And, and, you know, and, and take the, take the initiative. Uh, but maybe sometimes they're right and, and you can make the right choice. Sometimes it'll leave you dead, even though you did it. And that night, you know, my stepfather Ray would say, you know, the controller is going to go home. He's going to cry to his wife and say had a bad day. And next day he'll be back at work and he'll be dead. So how, how do you, you know, handle those situations? How do you know <laughs> when you shouldn't choose? Sometimes the best option is not to choose. And I'm sure you guys have both heard the saying, you know, like the first thing you do when there's an emergency is they used to say to the pilots in World War II, you know, wind your watch, uh, you know, mainly take a pause, take a beat. 
how do you know um, when to make a choice and sometimes when not to make a choice? How do you know when to execute the C <laughs> or not to C, if you will? Yeah, well, in the F-16, actually, there is still a wind-up clock in there. So oh, I, I talk about how instructors would say, you know, wind that clock. Another saying is uh, you can always make something worse. So uh, so you don't want to just start jumping to, to action. So, yeah, being able to... I think assess leads to to figuring out uh, what choices of action, uh, courses of action that you are choosing. So it's when you're looking at the assessment, it's it it follows a diminishing uh, return law. So you can stick around for in the case of flying two minutes, five minutes, trying to figure out the decision. But at some point, you're at the point where you're spending more time trying to assess that decision. You should probably move, make some sort of decision, and hopefully, it resets that diminishing return law and you start gathering more information and then you can make another decision there. So I think the key is discerning between is this something irreversible or is it something that you can update later on? If it's irreversible, you want to spend more time making that assessment. If it's something that you can reverse, it probably makes sense to uh, gather the information, make a decision, reset that diminishing return law, and then to, to go from there and keep iterating as you're moving forward. Yeah, I like Patton's quota. A good plan executed violently today is better than a perfect plan executed tomorrow. So sometimes, you know, and same in, in aviation, like flew a lot of single engine aircraft. If something goes wrong with the engine, turn, get towards the field, now start assessing your problem set. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, once again, you know, F-18, same thing. Like we had two engines, there was nothing, almost no emergency that required an immediate action. Like, make sure you're gonna shut the right engine down. Make mm -hmm. sure you're gonna- Right, yeah, you were saying once, yeah. you know, like a lot of pilots pull the wrong engine and they do the shutdown, right? Is that, that doesn't happen to Hazard because he's flying single engine. <laughs> if you shut down the engine- Yeah, but you can always lose that engine. So, you know, <laughs> you're always five minutes away from having to, to outrun the Taliban. <laughs> um, talk about the phenomenon of tunnel vision. When you have this kind of uh, get their itis, I always say to my wife, you know, the most dangerous things I'll ever say when I'm puttering around a little Cessna is I'll be home exactly at 5 p.m. You know, because when you do that, you're you're committing. You've got you know the sunk cost fallacy. You got to make it. I'm going to let her down. You know, she's going to the the dinner's going to get cold. And you know, I don't miss many meals. Uh, how do you guys deal with that tunnel vision, that monomaniacal focus? Um, what what are some tools, tricks for mortals to deal with uh, tunnel vision and um, and getting breaking out of that again the the hard part is maybe you know one of these guests that I hope to have on one day Derek Sivers uh, he used to say things like you know if knowledge were all that was required we'd all be billionaires with six-pack abs uh, so it's not just knowledge how do you know when you're in the tunnel how do you know how to punch out of that tunnel any any ideas guys it's yeah I can go so you know, you don't rise to the level of your expectation, you fall to your level of preparation. So I think a lot of it comes down to training yourself and, and inoculating yourself to that stress, both being prepared for that moment and understanding all the aspects of it, but also from a kind of a meta skill of understanding how to withstand that, that pressure. So I think working out is important even if you're a, if even if you're a scientist and you're in the you're not using your muscles it it's a stress there that that carries over in your ability to be able to manage that stress so i think that's one aspect is being prepared 
And what we do when we're flying uh, training missions is to make it far more complex and a lot more difficult than it is in the battlefield. We try to push ourselves because there's really no way to to replicate how stressful it is in combat. So you can push yourself as much as possible there so that when you get to combat, it's a little bit less difficult than uh, than if you uh, if you didn't do that. Secondly, some some minor tips. One is uh, a lot of students have issues when they're refueling for the first time. So we'll have airborne gas stations essentially, and it's a fully manual maneuver. You're, there's a, uh, essentially an airliner full of fuel, uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds, and you pull up behind it and it's really easy to, to crash into it and uh, cause a, a giant fireball. So a lot of students are really nervous. The tip that we give them is wiggle your fingers, wiggle your toes, because you start really clenching everything, clenching your jaw and, uh, and you know you can reverse that stress by wiggling your fingers, wiggling your toes, taking deep breaths. We use, uh, it really depends how much oxygen demand you need, but uh, a easy heuristic is, is uh, box breathing, five seconds in, hold five seconds, five seconds out, hold five seconds. But the big thing is just not hyperventilating. So trying to slow down your breathing as much as possible. And then lastly, for me, it, it's literally expanding that tunnel vision. So looking out of the corner of your eyes, it's called tunnel vision, you know, not just because cognitively you're focused on a single thing, but you, you actually, your vision shrinks down. So I find when I look out of the corner of my corners of my eyes and open that vision up, I start to detach and breathe. And that's a really important thing when you're showing up at fire, uh, close air support, firefights, the, the troops on the ground are under a lot more stress than you are. So when we show up, we have to be that calming force detached, and be able to think through it because they're dodging bullets down there and it's our job to be able to, to to make good decisions and to be that calming force that's detached from what's going on in the ground yeah i'll add the only thing i'll add is also command climate so in your wife's example would be you know making sure that she understands the danger if she gives you a hard deadline um, and you see that in commands as well like there are times where a skipper or someone is, is a bit more totalitarian and authoritarian wants you to do what they want you to do. Mm -hmm. And that can drive you to make those tunnel, uh, tunnel like decision making. So making sure that everyone's on board that, you know, in the end, you're the aircraft commander and they, they understand and will respect the choice that you end up making. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't make it to dinner. Yeah, hopefully you don't hear hear about it for the next week. So. <laughs> that's right. And if that's the worst thing that happens on a flight, that's uh, that's uh, nothing to be too ashamed about. Um, so Hazard, there's, there's undoubtedly uh, millions of people watching this, uh, you know, on uh, either one of our different platforms. Um, they're thinking, look, you guys are commanders of you know multi million dollar aircraft. I think what I, the thirty five F thirty five is close to a hundred million dollars a unit. Is that right? Yeah. So Correct. what can he possibly teach me? You know, I'm running you know a sticker uh, business where I do you know uh, wallpaper and paint supplies. So so has talk to people out there. What what are the commonalities? What are the lessons? The teachings? The learnings? That's just an ordinary person, not a superhero, not. You know, one of my uh, one of my questions for my audience, which I'll ask now, is you know, how how do how do you feel that they used your image for Buzz Lightyear and your persona, but they don't give you royalties? Okay, uh, <laughs> so you're like this magical superhero, you guys. Um, what is an ordinary you know man or woman, a you know car dealer in Tulsa, Oklahoma? What are they going to take away from this book? Yeah, so I try to distill it down in its decision making. If you boil down my job as a fire pilot, it's to make decisions. And I think it's more important than ever now. The average person 
burns 90 watts of electricity. And yet the average American is burning 12,000 watts. And that powers the technology that's leveraging the decisions that we're making. So I think decision-making is one of the most important skills, and yet it's not taught. I think from a leadership perspective that we are moving from an era of management, which came out of the industrial revolution, managing hundreds, if not thousands of people in a factory, to now, I think it was Bloomberg uh, was saying, Bloomberg uh, Finance was saying they expect a billion dollar company to be run by three people in the next 10 years. So that is due to leveraging AI. They expect to be an AI company leveraging technology. So three people versus in the 1800s, it probably took uh, took 100,000 people to be able to run a uh, what would have been a billion dollar company. So technology is leveraging the decisions we're making. It happens when I'm flying my jet, I can travel 100 times faster than I could by foot. I can carry 100 times more. I'm literally thousands of times more capable than I could be on my own. Same thing with your phone. It can do uh, it can do the job of dozens of people from just a few years ago. Car, you can go 10 times faster. Modern combine harvester, you can harvest crops hundreds of times faster than you can by hand. So it really comes down to being able to make good, precise decisions. And, uh, and that's something that applies to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in a few minutes, I'm going to go teach myself and I'm going to apply the lessons learned. Hopefully my students will think clearly. So we're going to reach the moment. We're going to ask some rapid fire questions um, from the audience. So I hope you'll uh, indulge us a little bit uh, hazard with some some quick answers and, and so forth. Um, okay, so this comes from, uh, oh, by the way, thanks for pointing out the billion dollar company. It's good to know that Stuart and I, my super pervert producer, we can do the job of three people, which is two people, and become a billion dollar podcast. Um, so Stuart asked the following question. Uh, are these myths, uh, I'm going to go through a couple different things. Uh, as a fighter pilot, are you living dangerously? Do you, do you ride a motorcycle do you need to have perfect vision and uh is chuck yeager kind of your avatar hero so first of all do you have to are you a dangerous person dangerous living person uh not not anymore i i think uh growing up i really wanted to to do something risky but now i see it as more of a risk versus reward system so most of the time not but i'm, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty ride a motorcycle motorcycle no it's not not worth it to me it doesn't cross that risk versus reward threshold do you have to have 2020 vision to be a stealth fighter pilot? Great question. No, you don't. So that's a big myth that that was true back in the day. I fly with people that have contacts, uh, glasses, and uh, have done LASIK. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Chuck Yeager. I, I, I used to joke about this. You know, when you get on a Southwest Airlines flight, you know, you're flying around the, the pilot going, you know, we're going to cruise up Vector 74 up to the coast. Uh, Oakland will start our descent down. I'm like, you're flying this thing. You push a button, you know, 30 seconds after. And no, I have a lot of pilots that listen to this podcast. Love you guys. Um, is it, is he your avatar is Chuck Yeager? Do you have, who's your hero? Who are your, some of your pilot heroes? I would say John Boyd, uh, Chuck Yeager, definitely for, for what he did and being able to, to get in that cockpit of the, uh, the X one. But I would say John Boyd, that'd be, uh, the one that I would, would want to go back and uh, see. Um, so yeah, that's that's probably the, the one. What uh, what about you, Aaron? Probably add Robin Olds and then a bunch of the Apollo astronauts who were you know started their life off as as fighter pilots. That's true. Okay, uh, Hazard. What enemy aircraft do you still fear the most? Still fear uh, and fighter aircraft. So. Uh, there are a couple ones out there, uh, 
257, J20. So those those are the more advanced aircraft out there. But mass also matters. People don't understand that, how many aircraft you have. The thousandth F-35 is rolling off the line right now versus these other countries only have a, a few amount of them. So mass matters. Uh, would you fly with a completely artificial intelligent pilot wingman or wing woman or wing, I, I, whatever, wing it, wing, wing thing? Would, you, would yeah. you feel comfortable with that right off your wing? Depends how good it is. So yes, I, I would if it if it could prove itself. So I, I'm not. I don't have a ideological issue with that. I think we have a long, long ways to go to be able to replace the fighter pod. I think we'll be here for a long time, but I do think we'll have some AI wingmen that can help us out, and that's going to be a good thing. Um, we you talk a lot in the book about the F one seventeen Nighthawk, uh, which was uh, only one or two, or one I think malfunctioned and one was shot down uh, by a combination. And I'll leave it. I, I hate when you go on a, a podcast as an author. The host asks you, "Well, just explain all your greatest stories in the book, and you know, give my audience a free audio book version of it." No, no, no we're not going to do that. <laughs> but you'll have to. It was really gripping. Uh, I, I could not stop listening uh, to that portion of the podcast. F one seventeen, I've heard, is being resurrected. Even uh, there's one out here in Palm Springs. If you ever want to come va visit us in SoCal, we'll take you out there. Uh, there's perfect restoration of it in the, in a in a a hardened bunker. Uh, but anyway, what, uh, what, what is, you know, the secret to its success? I mean, it was designed in the seventies. You talk about that. The B2 is allegedly maybe more stealthy, but it's also more massive and bigger. Uh, but the 117, they seem to have gotten it right. The first time it's even more stealthy than the F 35. Right. So, uh, why'd they retire it? Why not just keep it around? Yeah, it was just old, old technology. So it, they couldn't model curved services. So if you look at it, it's very angular. So, but it is, is old technology. The stealth coating took a, a lot of maintenance. There wasn't great avionics in it. The weapons loadout wasn't great. It uh, didn't have an air-to-air -air capability or a, a very good one. So there are a lot of issues with it. Um, so it wasn't maneuverable. Um, so yeah, a lot, a lot of issues with it. There's really, you know, no no tactical use to to keep them uh, as of now. Even and I, I think I told my one of my sons once that the uh, that the F fourteen, which is his favorite plane, uh, he has two two desires in life. He wants to be an F fourteen pilot and a rabbi. And I said I think that's going to be tough because the only country that still flies them is the is the Iranian uh, Republican Guard. Um, I want to ask both of you guys, what is in your dream hangar? If I could lay upon you that billion dollars when you start, uh, you turn the professional's playbook into just a money-making revenue source hazard, you buy your dream hangar, what's in it? And then I'm going to ask Ariel the same question. So F-16 is still my favorite aircraft. So I, I recently had a chance to fly with the first civilian F-16. So they exist out there. So yeah. I'm definitely going to have an F-16 in there. Uh, there's a new company called Black Shape that are making carbon fiber tandem uh, aircraft. Uh, they're kind of like the Ferraris of the sky. So I'm going to have one of those in there. Got to have a P-51 or some sort of warbird. Um, you're getting me excited. So, I mean, I, I'm going to have to stop there. But I, I'd have a lot of planes. The wife would not be happy. All right. Ariel, what about you? Having gotten one flight in F-16, I can, uh, you know, definitely uh, back him <laughs> up on that. Um Amazing aircraft, uh, P fifty one for sure. Extra three hundred was a lot of fun to fly. Um, I'd probably also put some sort of Gulf Stream so I could fly my family to ski trips. But 
uh, hazard. Uh, as you know, on modern podcasting, it's important to talk about AI. We talked a little bit about that. Um, and you also, I want to refer folks to my friend James Altucher's podcast with you, which is just, uh, you know, James sets the standard for many of us out there. He talked a little bit more about that there. But the other thing, the other two mandatory topics, AI, ChatGPT, um, and then there's also Bitcoin, which, you know, we're not going to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, but then the third topic, we have to talk about alien encounters. Uh, I am not at liberty to talk about the alien autopsies that I've been a part of or <laughs> might not have been a part of. Um, what do you make of the recent NASA-funded UAP, which uh, which is uh, led by David Spurgel, president of Simons Foundation, who's the benefactor behind most of my research. Uh, so I have to be careful. No, I love David, and he's, he's completely intellectually honest. Uh, he was my advisor back in college. And he was Ariel's advisor at Princeton University. Oh, by the way, uh, Ariel's call sign is? Pi. Pi. And he would have to read out all, you know, all digits. I never read out the digits because the middle four decimals are my uh, pin number at the ATM. Hazard. Uh, any, any encounters, maybe not, you know, extraterrestrial in origin, but anything that you could not explain or understand during your historic career? So I'm not going to say I ever ran into aliens, but there are a lot of things that you, you see in the air that you don't have a full understanding of. So... You'll see things on the radar. You'll slew your targeting pod out and see dots out there. So you do see a lot of things like that. I'm not going to say that they're aliens because really as fighter pilots, you're so focused on on the mission at hand. I think the same thing happens when you're driving. If you're on a long road trip, you see a lot of things out there that you're like, I don't know what that is. It's kind of a glint off the, the mountain face or something like that. Um, and you, you don't have the time to, to go deviate and, uh, and go check that out. So I have seen a lot of things that, uh, I don't fully understand, but, uh, I'm not prepared to say that they're any sort of, uh, aliens. They might've, might've been just, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, balloons flying around, things like that in the middle of a mission when you're too busy, uh, focus on that to really give full attention to this. What about you and your, your buddy, Ryan Graves? Uh, the balloons is actually probably my closest was I yeah, picked up some weird radar returns, locked them up, intercepted, turned out to be balloons. And then another time right after launch on a carrier, picked up a, a radar hit, queued my 9X, it, it got uh, tone, ended up doing a left to left with the, an Iranian drone. But uh, no, sadly, uh, uh, Ryan, Ryan and I were uh, squadron mates. Uh, we're still good friends. I was at his wedding. Um, I, I unfortunately never saw the stuff that he he got to see. So yeah. um, even though one of the um, battleships out there was the Princeton, right? Um, okay, we're, we're almost at the end. Hazard, I thank you for your patience and your indulgence. Um, when you're flying by wire, one of the most famous examples. Again, we're not going to get into it because such a cool and amazingly applicable to any domain, aviation or not. The story of the, the Airbus crash that leads off the book Air France, I believe it was back in '09 and '10. Um, fly by wire. Is that something that's really removing the stick and rudder, the Chuck Yeager? Is that diminishing the pilot's aptitude at all? Not at all. So fly by wire is something we've been doing since the 1970s with the F-16, and it is pretty eye-watering now. So in the F-35, we're, we're running a, a continuous model of the aircraft flying, and when I put in an input, it's not necessarily the flight controls that are making uh the traditional flight controls that are making that happen. The jet will figure out the best way to do that. And the best example I can use is in that first Top Gun when when uh, Maverick's in that flat spin out to sea, out of control. 
We do that routinely. Like we, <laughs> we will do that on purpose and have a precise ability to, to increase the spin rate or less. So, uh, you know, you can never do that, uh, without a flight control system. So it really makes you a better pilot. Now the extension of that, of AI and stuff like that, there's, there's a lot of issues, but in terms of just a pure uh, flight control system, it's very beneficial and makes us a lot more agile because these jets would go out of control. They're fundamentally, uh, uh, they're an unstable, uh, system. So you need those inputs from the computer to keep it flying. Okay. A few more questions here. Do you have a comment, Arya? Um, I have a sort of controversial topic yeah. for the uh, A-10 versus F-35. And I was kind of curious as to your perspective. I know the Air Force uh, has been trying to get rid of the A-10 for a while as someone who did a tour with the JTAC, found the A-10 to be an amazing aircraft. Um, curious to, as to what your thoughts are on replacing the A-10 fleet with the F-35. Yeah, that's a good one. Definitely controversial. Um, it, it really depends on what we're doing. So if we are pivoting towards great power competition, like the national defense strategy is saying, then I think we have to be prepared for a higher end battery. And you can see it playing out in Ukraine. Any aircraft flying low is getting shot down. And so I uh, had a chance to do an interview of an A-10 uh, pilot at Nellis Air Force Base, their test uh test squadron there and they're saying they're not planning on shooting the gun ever in these conflicts so now the a10 you get rid of the gun the primary thing because it's going to have to fly at high altitude because those man portable air defense systems are going to be shooting shooting them down even though there's a lot of armor there's a lot of those man pads out there so if we are pivoting towards this great power competition uh with with higher end threats then it probably makes sense to uh to either uh you know kind of mothball the a10 or to downsize it, depending on how the finances look, but it's it's probably not going to be that survivable in these conflicts. Mm -hmm. Last question for both of you guys. I've studied this in great detail. Um, can Ukraine win this conflict without air superiority? Uh, can they do it with drones? Um, Ariel, I know you've thought about this a little bit. Um, so, is a, a drone, you know, kind of a DGI war? Is this is this a new new theater class weapon, or how can they win a war with? I mean, no war has been won without air superiority, at least in my silly understanding of military history. Uh, so, correct me if I'm wrong. So, is air superiority necess necessary, um, if not sufficient? Uh, my fear with Ukraine war is that it's become a war of attrition, and uh, without being able to go after the supply lines from either side, you're just going to continually grind down your forces. Mm. Um, in terms of air superiority, uh, I think Ukraine can probably get its territory back without it. I haven't given this too much thought um, where air superiority would come into a, a nice, would be a, a benefit would be that ability to go into enemy territory to take out their nodes, to take out their fuel supply, ammunition supply, all the their logistics chain that gets their troops into the battlefield to begin with. Mm. Um, and obviously there are limitations on on the scale of that war. Great. And uh, Hazard, any thoughts from you on air superiority's necessity? Yes. So that uh, as long as they can prevent Russia from having air superiority, I think they can win. So that's my specialty is the suppression of enemy air defense. So in Top Gun 2, the, the missiles along the canyon walls, Mm -hmm. taking those sites out. And so Russia has failed to do that with Ukraine. And so Ukraine has prevented uh, Russia from having air superiority. So as long as we can keep uh, those uh, SAM sites by Ukraine uh, operating and having missiles, 
then I think there's a, a very good chance of, uh, of Ukraine being able to, to hold off. Mm. Well, uh, Hazard, uh, I want to ask you if there are any other th uh, topics that you'd like to talk about before we close out. And I start to apply these lessons, not the lethal lessons, of, of course, but to my class. Um, anything else that you want to uh, mention besides the podcast, Professionals Playbook, your LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube channel, which is an inspiration, um, and this wonderful book. And it was really a gift to me as a, not just as a uh, pilot, you know, aspiring to, to sometimes have a, have a greaser landing, uh, but also to be a, a better leader manager and think more clearly can you uh, uh let me know any other things you'd like to bring up no that, that was it this has been great i really appreciate you having me on I, i'm really happy that you enjoyed the book and especially the audiobook the audiobook uh, i just bought your book i i need to get the audio one did you uh did you record it yourself not my first book my second book i did some of the audiobook but the and my third book it's one third of the 23 hours of conversation of galileo is me so yes it is okay. it's a treat to to hear your actual voice and uh i really appreciate the artistry of it and not surprising for a book with art and its title hazard lee uh your inspiration your hero people compare you uh, favorably to buzz aldrin buzz lightyear um and uh you're, you're a phenomenal writer this is this is just such a treat thank you for your service both of you gentlemen and uh and thank you for all for joining us on the into the impossible podcast remember you can always ask me questions and ask hazard questions about the book he loves to interact on instagram especially linkedin as well And uh, please, uh, please do keep in touch, Hazard. And I hope you'll have many, many books, courses, as I said, supplements. You know, just just give me a little cut. And 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 especially motion sickness bags, like <laughs> like our friend Russell Monroe. We need some Hazard Lee branded uh, motion sickness. In all honesty, uh, Major Major Lee, thank you so much for joining us on the Into the Impossible podcast. Thank you, Brian. This has been great. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch and inspired by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you an artifact older than the earth, forged in the fire of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us blow past the 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. Please keep it growing by following, subscribing, and sharing. And remember, always be curious.